Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. So, as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Silver Chapter, because I recently spoke to Eugene Coyne to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other stuff. Um, They brought out a cassette in 1985 on Silver Sound Productions and uh, did various singles, mostly, it looks like, on Fire Records. So, um, yes, this is going to be the interview with Eugene. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Eugene, we're waiting. What your kind of moment kind of was? That's a really good question. I mean, music's always been around my house. My dad was a musician and my mum would make music as well. She played the piano and things like that. So there's always a lot of music constantly playing. Um, I don't really know what was the first kind of music which grabbed me, but I think the first kind of music which really felt like it was mine, which I was kind of following and I was actively buying and interested in was kind of electronic stuff. I got into the Human League and Kraftwerk and Doug Krups and DAF and all those kind of groups. Okay. And that really felt like something that was mine. You know, my dad was more into kind of blues and rock and that's very good for... I mean, he would listen to a lot of stuff and Bowie and ACDC and all kinds of things. But the first kind of music I really got into, which I really followed, was electronic stuff. A lot of stuff on mute, all the Fat Gadget stuff, Silicon Teen stuff. Yes. All those kind of things I just really loved. Yeah. So what was your moment when you sort of saw something on, say, on Top of the Pops that you thought, my God, that's fantastic. That's something that that's kind of more mine than my parents. Because my parents, <laughs> I mean, you know, were that generation who liked things like anything from Elvis to Teresa Brewer to K-Star. Those kind of singer-songwriters. No, they weren't songwriters, were they? Those singers like those 50s singers and Elvis and then a bit of country and Western, really 60s, 50s and 60s country and Western. I just wanted you know, what that moment, you know, your first single was and your first album. Well, my first single was Five Minutes by The Stranglers, which I really love. I can't remember what my first um, album was, but I just really loved The Stranglers. I remember being at sort of, I just really liked them. And uh, as far as music, I started getting into things with, I formed a new group of friends at school when I was probably about 14, 15. And they were really into going to gigs. They used to go and see the birthday party and all those kind of people. And that was my first kind of really getting into gigs. But the first gig I went to, I think by myself, well, the first gig I went to was Gary Newman. Right. I loved, I really enjoyed. And the first gig I went to by myself was the Dead Kennedys, I think. Blimey. Yeah, that the was Ace good. in Brixton. And uh, that was good. Yeah, so because yes. so, because I suppose I I have to confess because I'm in my mid fifties now, so I sort of missed punk really, to be honest. Um, so it was kind of the eighties period, kind of you know, and then sort of discovering John Peel. So when did you start to think that you wanted to be kind of in a band, and and you thought actually I'm going to pick up an instrument here? Well, I started playing I think when I was about fourteen. Started playing guitar. I had a friend at school who was one of those kind of new circle of friends I mentioned called Joe. My brother was really young, but he is super musical and he's still making music himself. And we sort of, there were the three of us and then we met a drummer and yeah, so I guess mid-teens. Yes. So was it definitely from what you were saying, you missed the, electro- did you miss the electronic music of people like Tangerine Dream and Vangelis? And then it was more the 80s stuff. It was more the 80s stuff. I mean, the stuff which I really connected with was stuff like Fat Gadget, 
stuff like Back to Nature. I really love Back to Nature. Um, that's really good. Um, yeah. Suicide, got very heavily into Suicide, really loved them. Stooges, um, Silver Apples, all those kind of groups. Okay. MC5, not so much New York Dolls. Um, right. Just all that sort of very heavy kind of grounding in, you know, all the so-called kind of classics of rock, I guess. Yes. But some of the early stuff as well, you know, all the kind of Chuck Berry stuff and Bo Diddley and things like yeah. that. Which play did you stuff. sort of, did the 60s sort of that period of kind of like, I don't know, Hendrix, The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, did that sort of come into your consciousness or was that something that you didn't? I did. I did. I mean, we were sort of, my kind of peer group was kind of into everything, I think. We were very into all kinds of things. So I would listen to Jimi Hendrix, I like The Seeds, I like all those kind of garage bands. That was probably the, the next kind of stuff which I really got heavily into after the kind of electronic stuff. The Cramps were a great group, they were a great gateway group to just so many different kind of um, groups. They really kicked a lot of stuff off, I think, with what they were covering and what they were doing. So from them you get into, I guess, um, Nuggets, uh, rock, you know, what's, what is it? Um, you know, all those kind of things. Um, Chocolate Watch Band, 34 Elevators, Rocky Erickson, uh, Music Machine, I really love. Um, Seeds I mentioned, really love them. Just lots and lots of groups. Yes. And everything goes into a big old kind of pot. It does, <laughs> it does. And it must have been a little bit different because you're probably one of the only people I've ever spoke to who, whose parents and were sort of professional musicians, really. Well, my mum wasn't a professional musician. I mean, she... When we were very young, she sort of was, she was at art college, that's where she met my dad. Um, but for one reason or another, she didn't really come out of that and study art. But later, when we started to get a bit older, she studied art therapy. So she was a sort of vanguard of kind of art therapists and studying that and really into that. But she's very musical and she would play piano and we would sit around singing um, the Ballad of Jesse James and Who Killed Cop Robin. I really love that song. It's a really yes. very old. Do you know that song? Vaguely, yes. Yeah, it's, you know, Who Killed Cop Robin. Uh, I, I, I said the sparrow with my bow and arrow. I killed <laughs> Cop Robin. And then all the birds in the trees started crying and a sobbing when they heard of the death of poor Cop Robin. And it goes on and on and on, you know, so it's a really, it's a really miserable song. And I don't know if she chose it or we chose it. Yes. So what your first band? Was this the band which, you know, Silver Chapter? Yeah, for sure. That was my first band. Right. Because indie uh, pop, because I've got indie pop, because we had sort of punk, then post-punk with all those bands who like Gang of Four and Magazine and Peel. And um, I slightly miss them as well. And Wire. And then there's sort of, then we had that early period of kind of Echo and the Bunny Men and U-Tune sort of Simple Minds and Big Country. But I was kind of really there on the moment the Smiths hit, you know, that was kind of like, okay. And I've sort of put indie pop between the years of 83 to 87, which were the years of the Smiths. So did you, were, were you, you know, what was, did you sort of feel that there was something kind of happening that you were thinking, actually, I might this might be something that I'm going to get into. Because obviously your, your first album came out, I know it was in, on cassette in sort of 85, but did, oh, that, sure. did you, did you think mean, like a movement? We never, actually, we never actually put an album out, we put singles out, and that was the one thing we never actually did, so. <laughs> <laughs> we never, no, we put singles out, we put stuff out on Anagram and stuff through Cherry Red, but we never had an album out. Yes, I know, it's such a shame. So did you feel, I mean, that period, because, because, 
because during them, you know, we had the NME, which was like phenomenal kind of circulation, the melody making sounds, John Peel, there's all these little clubs. Did you sort of have a wave of that kind of teenage enthusiasm for being in a band? Um, we were very enthusiastic. I don't know if it was because of what was happening, but very kind of disassociated really from what was going on around us. I mean, I was aware of groups but didn't really identify with many of them. And I know Joe and Rob felt the same. Um, I remember seeing the Smiths. I saw them supporting the Paul at the Electric Ballroom. And that was probably, I think, their second gig in London. Yeah, and they were really good. They were they were really good. And then I saw them at the venue and didn't like them so much, and uh, so on and so on. But yeah. no, we didn't we didn't we didn't feel very in sync with anything. You know, we would sort of there were people bands that we would see. I really like the Scientists, for instance, and I know Tony from the Scientists now. Um, you know, they're an Australian band. They came over, and we. We used to love them. And actually, they really got me into Stooges, I guess, and things like that, to some extent. But no, we didn't feel particularly in sync with anybody. So, And I still don't think, if you listen to our music, it sounds that much in sync. Yes. But then your first single, Deb, was it Debbie? It was, yeah. On Amagram. So had the band sort of been going that long before you sort of managed to sort of get into the studio? Yeah, it felt like a while, actually. It felt like a while. I mean, we had a drummer in the beginning called Mitch who we played with, and that didn't work out, and we sort of got into drum machines, I guess, and electronics, and later we would put stuff on DAT, and things would get very uh, involved and a little bit kind of convoluted, very orchestral kind of arrangements of things, very strange arrangements of things. But basically, the stuff which we were playing was really straightforward. And in the beginning, I think it was probably better for it as well, just a kind of repeating kind of drum pattern. Um, I would sing, Joe would play guitar, my brother would play bass, later he would play guitar, and we would have two guitarists, and like I say, a more sort of structured backing track. So at that stage, had you left school, college, or you, were you studying, or doing the classic thing that a lot of people were doing in those days, was kind of signing on, and there was things like the Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance schemes that gave people a kind of a, a one-year period of sort of being self-employed? Well, I was at art college. I, went, I left school and I went to art college. But I didn't really give it the full works because I really wanted to do music. That's what I was really concentrating on. And I think when we signed, my brother, he's a few years younger than me. He was still at school. He was, I think he was 15. So my parents had to sign. We were very young anyway. But I think probably I was about 20 when that first record came out, 2021. Yes. So, yeah. Um, but it felt like we've been trying for ages. But really, in reality, it hadn't been that long. I don't think. Yes. <laughs> and were your parents... And were your parents excited by your sort of like, my God, we've got two children who have decided to go into music. That might not be, a, you know. Um, I think my dad was in Germany by then. My parents had kind of split up. So it was really, but yeah, of course he would be excited. I think he would be happy, you know, but it's a strange route for anybody to take, as I'm sure you're aware. It's all. Yes, it's not. It's not very it's, twisty and it's very up and down and it's not always going to have the outcome that you were hoping for. So that was a four, your, it was a four track EP you put out, which was all good. So had you, I mean, by then, had you sort of written, recorded quite a few songs and played quite a few live shows? I think we played quite a few live shows. We were always recording. But I mean, as far as sort of professional quality recording going into the studio, we didn't do many of those, but we had lots and lots of, we, we always had a lot of material. Yes. So. Um, and creatively, how did that kind of marry or all sort of work alongside your art school days? 
well, art school kind of got very pushed very much into the background, you know, and I ended up actually failing the year. Um, but I don't know, we were into all kinds of things. I mean, it wasn't just music. We all had an interest in art. We all had an interest in kind of broader things. Um, you know, when I say I felt slightly out, we felt slightly out of step. The kind of things we liked were things which were larger than life, really liked Kiss and their approach to things, you know, this whole, yeah, just bigger and gaudier. And yes. we feel very small and sort of contained and miserable. We felt quite kind of open to everything. Big stuff. Because at that stage, you know, we'd had the indie pop world and then Ecstasy came along about 87, 88. So things were changing. But then you had those other bands like you had, um, you know, like, I suppose you had My Bloody Valentine was starting to appear and, and Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine and that sort of North London scene like Sil Silverfish and the Faith Healers and um, Lush as well. So did you sort of, were you in any kind of like, oh, that's a bit of our gang or did you always feel a little bit out of it? Or were you, you know, I just wondered because it's kind of interesting how many of the bands I've interviewed, especially London, they all seem to have slightly knew each other and sort of swapped drummers occasionally. Well, I knew Belinda and I knew Kevin. Um, so, yeah, I did. I mean, to some extent, I knew people. Um, but we were really, I can't really emphasise enough, we were just very, very self-contained, just very much following our own kind of track. And I, I don't know. There weren't really that many groups I knew. I mean, I knew vaguely the hypnotics. I knew the scientists because I really liked them and, you know, things like that. But it wasn't like we felt particularly part of any scene, to be really honest. would sometimes go down to Alice in Wonderland or go down to the Clarendon. I saw a lot of gigs at the Clarendon. Um, yes. Alan Vega. That so, really so at that stage of your life, was music the main thing that you were doing for the rest of the decade? Yeah, music was my thing. You know, I, mean, I love music, but I had to work in the same way that I'm making music now and I have to work. Yes. Um, you know, it's very... If you can make, if you can really be for, if you can really be focused on your music and concentrate on your music and make a living from your music, I think you're very blessed. It's very difficult to do that, and there's a lot of people who cannot do that for whatever reason, and probably some people who that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose but, yeah. for me, it would be very nice. I would quite enjoy uh, making more music and spending more time on more music. Yeah, because there was quite a gap between that first kind of release and then your next EP, which is Teenage Screamer. So why was it, why, because normally this is the narrative I've got, you know, most bands have five years, they, especially that period, you know, they get together, they spend 12 months faffing about, they make a sound, John, you know, they make a single, John Peel plays it, they get a John Peel session, the first album, things are going good. Most places, uh, cities and towns at that time had a venue, like an alternative night, didn't they, from you know, Norwich to Bristol to Glasgow, Leeds. So most people did a lot of touring in little vans up and down the countryside and especially lots in London. And then it was kind of often the second album was the slightly tricky one and the third one often killed most bands off that I've interviewed. So how did you, your narratives, you know, it was quite a gap between the first EP and the second EP. I think, I think our narrative is really different. I mean, for us, we were not particularly connected with other bands. We never had anybody managing us. We never had anybody doing publicity. So it was kind of coming off what we were doing. And we were, you know, we were trying to reach people, but it's not necessarily that easy. Um, we were very motivated and we would try to, you know, reach out. But say with the next one, which we did, that was really helped by um, Pete Kemba. We knew Pete Kemba through 
Spaceman 3 and got to meet him. He's a very nice guy and I've met him many times since and he's still a really nice guy and he really wanted to put us out so he did you know. Yes. Um, I think he felt something slightly kind of kindred in what we were doing, the approach that we had. Like I say, we would do, you know, we liked things which were larger in life. We would do toys and bubblegum sticks and all kinds of things, pinball machines and all kinds of things which were maybe other bands weren't doing. You know, we were, I mean, we, it's, it was all very weird. I mean, we had like a video which was directed by Bruce Dickinson. My girlfriend at the time knew Bruce Dickinson, so he sort of, got involved in that. And we were always sort of doing stuff slightly off at a tangent, I think. Right. That was the idea anyway. Yes. God, wait, I just need to just check one thing because I think I might have done something. Mm. No, that's fine. I just wondered if I just locked my partner out at the house. <laughs> you locked your partner out, that would be... Uh... Well, sometimes, oh God, you know, I'll edit this bit out, I'll probably forget, but it was that thing that sometimes when you come in from the garden, it's like I just accidentally do lock, and I think, oh shit, I haven't. Anyway, hopefully. So then, but then, your next record is on Fire Records, which is quite an interesting move, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's okay. I mean, basically, we did a, we did a single which was on Boppersonic, which was Pete Kember's label. Very short-lived label, which he had of his own stuff. And that was very cool. And then we did stuff with On Fire, and we sort of got connected through Fire. Again, um, there was someone called, I think, John Eidman, who was living down the road. He worked at Fire, and he connected me up with um, Dave, whose name escapes me for some reason. Sorry, Dave, at Fire. There was Clive Solomon as well. And they were very interested and wanted to do stuff with us. Um, yeah, so that's where we started putting things out then, and we had a short-lived, we two or three releases out in there. Yes. So how come no album? You know. Well, funnily enough, they offered us an album, a chance to do an album, and I just think, even though we had all the material and we had a lot of stuff, we just really wanted it to be great. And I think, with hindsight, if we'd just gone, yeah, we'll do an album, it'd be good, and that would have got us a lot more press and a lot more sort of forward momentum. Yeah. Have you ever sort of been tempted to? compile what you've done and, and archive it all. Yeah, of course. I mean, it would be easy to do that and there'd be extra stuff to put on. But it's demand, isn't it? I mean, if somebody came to me and said, I want to, you know... Do it. Can we put this out? Then, you know, you would have it yesterday. I yes. Mean, it's, it's certainly not like it's being kept under lock and key. No. <laughs> and I guess you, you won't... If you, you want it, the... come to me and I'll sort you out. I'll sort it all out. So how did the band finish? Because this was kind of 83. So you, we'd gone through the Brit... No, we'd gone through India, then we'd done dance, then grunge, and Britpop yeah. was about to appear. And you'd sort of gone through most of those musical styles, and then you just said, that's it. It kind of faded out a little bit. I mean, it didn't end so well, really. Um, I think when you put a lot of energy into something and you're really growing up together, I think it can be a bit like having a kind of divorce. I mean, me and Rob were brothers, so that was okay. But I didn't really speak to Joe for a few years, and then that sort of stabilized itself and you know I love him I love him very much so it's all good but I yes. think it's just one of those things that sort of lost its kind of momentum lost a little bit of direction I mean part of the thing which I really enjoyed about it was the simplicity maybe it started becoming a little bit more not complicated but maybe I don't know you know it's hard to keep that kind of momentum going I think yeah when you're kind of really focused in your teens and then you move into your 20s, there's a lot of other things which start to uh, intrude, I think. Did it feel like quite a loss when, when you decided that was it and you were going to stop? Um, 
truthfully, not so much. I mean, because I just carried on making music with my brother, you know, and we did we did other stuff and just kept going with that. It just felt like that as an entity was just difficult. You know, you have to all be pulling in the same direction. It didn't feel like we were all pulling in the same direction. But I still make, you know, I still make music with Rob and he still pops up. He was still recording things on my, you know, I've done solo albums and he's played on those. Um, yes, you've done so loads of solo albums actually, haven't you? Yeah, I'm very busy and uh, ready to do the next one as well. So yeah, tune in. So they, yeah, so how did that, I mean, has that just been so much easier just thinking, right, I've learned, I've learned from being in the band that I'm just going to decide to just stick with what I do and just get a few, my brother in and the various other people when, when I need them? Or were you, are you just somebody who does it all on your own? No, I mean, basically after Silver Chapter stopped, there was a gap. Uh, and then I did another band called Mean Vincent with my brother. And that's a really good group, which, again, is really great, but we never actually released anything, recorded an album, but we lost one of our members and that wasn't very good. So it kind of really uh, stopped everything full stop. And after that, I sort of got more, again, you know, I'm sort of, I have a family, I have work, and I just needed time out and then just gradually start to record again. Yeah. Recorded one album, which was with my brother on drums and he played all the guitar on that and then another album that gradually kind of expands. And at the moment, uh, the latest one, I have a drummer, Dan, Dan Meyer, who's really good. So we're playing out live with that. Sometimes I'll play out acoustically and do that or electrically, you know, solo stuff. And it's good and it works for me like that. Yes. And how have you found... I was going to say, I absolutely quite, I absolutely like doing my own thing. I'm very happy not to have anybody. Yes. Well, on, on, in retrospect, you know, because it was kind of interesting because I was always obsessed with David Bowie and realising that he just kind of got whatever band or members together mm. when he needed the next project, which was the next album or the next tour. Did you, you know, looking back, is that the way you would prefer kind of working from the early years? Or I suppose you just had to go through whatever you had to go through mm. at the beginning, really. I think if you're playing with the right people and you're pulling in the right direction, it's really powerful. And I think when you see a band who are really unique this is something which is really special about bands with some bands you can see everybody is really contributing something and the sum is greater than the whole and it's really something special and when you see that it's fantastic and when you play in a band like I have done in bands like that it's really magical you, you know when you hit really the feeling of being say really unified and really focused and within the moment playing music is really fantastic so that's great um, but for me I'm very open to it. You know, there's myself and Dan, I would say that is the core of what we're doing at the moment. But it doesn't mean I don't want to play with other people. And uh, I just feel slightly differently that I've got to get out and grab a bass player, or I've got to grab a keyboard player, or I've got to grab someone. I think they're going to find their way to what yeah. I'm doing. You know, and I don't think I need to really crack the whip that much. You know, I don't really want to get us, you know, get somebody in and just really tell them what to do you know I think if you have people who are good musicians or good spirits they find their own way to do things and you really your your touch is really minimal you're not really doing much at all you know yeah. they fall into sync with what you're doing and that works you know if you have the right ingredients you know to use some sort of strange cooking analogy you don't really, <laughs> you don't really need to do anything with them really yeah you know, and, Dan, and Dan I would say is a fantastic drummer incredible drummer and but sure it's interesting because I've never been in a band or a musician, but I've always just been the fan. And then sort of meeting people who 
And then, I mean, it's interesting being from Norwich because really, you know, Norwich hasn't got the greatest musical history, you know, heritage really. You know, we've got the Farmers Boys, Higsons and Serious Drinking and then some other random bands. But mostly they never quite make it. And But having sort of spoke to quite a few. At the, uh, is West Clunton Pavilion, is that near you up in Norwich? Mm, I suppose it's on the coast, North Norfolk coast, you know. But I mean, that would just, those glory days are gone before I was old enough to start going yeah. up there really. But the interesting thing is a lot of the bands never got, out of playing in front of their friends and family and basically anybody else they could kind of emotionally blackmail to go and see them but it was like talking to various kind of the key members it was like they were just having so many problems with the personnel of the guitarist who was a bit of a pain in the ass who just annoyed everybody but the guitarist was quite good and then you know then the drummer decides to leave and then the bass you know so basically they were a sort of like even though they were running a band it was more like an HR department really of people just dealing with personality problems and clashes and then people leaving and then trying to get someone. And you could just see like, so when do you get to play any music or when do you record? And it's a bit like, no, we're just kind of trying to just get a date together to, to re rehearse with the new drummer, you know? So it was quite, it is mm. quite a lot more complex than I could imagine until having spoken to a lot more people and then thought, God, it must be really hard going. Well, I think, well, still the chapter we were sort of pulling in the same direction and we were actually growing together and our tastes were kind of growing and evolving into a point where I don't think it really made sense to a lot of other people necessarily what our tastes were and the way that we kind of evolved what we were following and what we were drawn to. So that was one thing. And with me and Vincent, that was another thing. It was very focused. Everybody was pulling in the same direction. We didn't have those sort of problems with... Um, Everybody liked each other, you know, and we wanted to do it. You know, there were problems to some extent, but not really anything which was insurmountable, just any old, you know, nothing really difficult, I would say. Yes. And with what I'm doing now, it feels, it feels very straightforward. You know, the kind of issues are always the same issues, which I think anybody who's making music and wants to go into a studio, it's more money, you know, it's money and just things about sort of releasing and this, that and the other. But I've been playing live over the last few years and that's been really good so i've met some interesting people done some interesting things and uh i feel full of energy and optimism put it like that yeah and i'm ready, to, I'm ready to record a new album i want to get onto it so have you because I, I i remember a few months ago quite a few months i you know just when this whole year started to get a bit peculiar hank wangford who just released an album and he was feeling particularly depressed really by the state of things and wasn't feeling particularly inspired how have you sort of as a, an artist been feeling about this kind of um, period of kind of lockdown and then sort of getting back to a certain normality and then sort of wondering what the next normal will be and then when you ever play live again so has has that has that how has that kind of affected you well coming at it sort of um and on. I have played live. I played live a couple of weeks ago at the Windmill, a strange kind of socially distanced gig, which I'm not how I'm not sure how socially distanced it was. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of scrubbing and sanitizing, and you better bring your own vocal mic, which I should have been doing for years anyway, to tell you the truth. And it was good, and it was great to play, and great to actually have that kind of connection because I really enjoy playing live, and I didn't realize how much I would enjoy it until I started really seriously doing it a few years ago. And, you know, the only kind of analogy I can think is, you know, I remember someone saying, yeah, I must teach you poker, but you've got, you're going to have to play with real money, you know, because it's just not the same if you're playing with matchsticks. You know, you're not actually standing to lose anything. Yes. And I think if you're playing live, like for me, I think it just sharpens everything, you know. You have to actually really be able to sing properly. You have to be able to play properly. You have to be able to present yourself properly and you have to actually be able to 
forcefully be in the present moment. And if you can't do that, then obviously you have to learn very quickly or perhaps you're going to stop and go back and just carry on recording. Yeah. And I do like playing, you know, and I do enjoy it. But as far as actually writing, I mean, I don't have problems writing and creating new material. I've got a new album written. It's ready to go. I did do that. I demoed it about a month ago, I think, which is something that I don't normally do. I don't normally demo anything. I just went in to my favourite studios, which is One Cat Studios in Brixton, and just did guitar and vocal demos, and it sounds great. So I'm just ready to go with it. And I've just been writing another couple of songs recently to add to it. So when time and energy... It's all there. And do you... I mean, the hardest thing is actually, I really miss rehearsing. That is one thing, you know. And if you sort of feel like you're match fit and you're ready to play, you know, I can do it myself. That's no problem. I can sort of sit in my room and sort of play and sing. And I'm ready to go solo. But if I want to play with Dan, there's a kind of connection and communication which can get a little bit rusty. So that's, we have to get match fit again to record. Yes, absolutely. Good. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were able able to say something to an 18-year-old self starting out from back then, I just wondered what your kind of key kind of message or key, you know, like top tip would be. My top tip, 100%, yes. would be yeah. have a trade, be a carpenter, be a brickie, be something which will bring you in the money that you need to carry on doing the thing that you actually really enjoy. Uh, you know, my thing is kind of words, and that's what I'm good at. But there's a lot of people who are good at words, you know. But I would say have something to support yourself. And also just try to be really free, you know, in the sense that you don't need to rely on somebody else. It's really, it's really good to write your own songs, to write your own words, to be able to do it all by yourself. Yeah. I think it's really important. And I think, you know, a lot of the bands which you mentioned, they kind of flounder this kind of HR bit where they have to, you know, they have to do this or they have to do that. If you really want to be a free person in this world, you have to be able to do those things. I mean, and I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. You know, I'm not an engineer. I don't engineer stuff. I don't do things like that. But if you put me in front of a mic, I can sing and play and I can definitely flatten people when I'm in the right mood. So yes, that's, that would be my advice to somebody who's starting out, just practice and become self-sufficient. Yes, this is true, actually, because I think most people, and it's interesting, I was interviewing well, I suppose a lot of the bands is that they do have a day job now, you know, though, you, you know, like, and the person who comes to mind was Amelia Fletcher, who's kind of lectures at UEA. Yeah. But, you know, in the evening, she does all these other bands that she's involved with. And, and I was kind of curious how she does it. And she said, well, you know, she's passionate about both, but one is the day job and one is what she does in the evenings. And it's like, and they're both kind of like 100% committed to both things. So it's quite interesting that, because I think the one, the thing that I'm surprised about, and I didn't know, but then I do obviously, is that there really isn't much money in, in music. So you can't, you might be able to vaguely, while you're in that moment of record, you know, releasing albums and touring, get a little bit of cash in to pay for sort of petrol and possibly a bit of rent if you're lucky but there is no kind of like voila here's loads of money and you'll keep getting a certain amount of pension when the album when the band breaks up because it doesn't really happen does it no it doesn't i mean i think it's always been the same i mean if you went right back to the 40s the 50s you know i look at these albums which are selling in I don't know, FOP or somewhere like that. These beautiful blues albums, which are sold, you know, it's two pounds each. It's like, well, what about the artists? What do they see from this? Do they ever see any of this money? 
you know, these records which we're buying for like four, you know, CDs for four ninety nine or three ninety nine. <laughs> what's what's happened to the people who created them? Yes. So it's all been like that, and it's it was never very different. You know, the people who are at the top are making a living from it. I think if you can make any kind of a living, you're very lucky. But it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Yes. And did your did your dad ever give you any sort of key advice? Because he obviously no, um, he's, he was a really good artist. He was a great artist. Really, really. Absolutely fantastic. But I think in terms of um, being financially kind of literate or all those kind of things, that just wasn't what he was interested in. And he didn't have that sort of faculty, you know, which worked against him, you know. But as far as music, I got a absolutely 100% top-notch education in music. Yes. Uh, and a, a wonderful role model for that, somebody who does their own thing is very committed to doing what they do. Um, yeah, and free, you know, just really free in that sense. That's really good. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know he's, he died, I think it was 16 years ago, maybe now. Um, but people still love his work and they still move towards his work and it finds the right people, people who, yeah, I'm not even going to classify them for whatever reason. It finds an audience and uh, I think it will continue to do that. Which is, yeah, it's a nice feeling, isn't it? Amazing, for good feeling. Right, well, look, Eugene. Okay. This has been amazing, but thank you ever so much for this. And yeah, well, it's really nice to talk to you, and uh, I wish you well with your projects. How long do you, how many more names do you have on your list? A lot, actually, a lot. Have you, have you, have you, have you seen... Have you only got to see, you were talking about conflicts. Conflicts, coin, you were talking about C, conflict, coin, is... Are you only on the letter C at the moment? <laughs> no, no, luckily not. <laughs> no, God, that would have been horrendously. Yeah, no, I just sort of, you know, whatever's coming up. No, there's always, you know, it's surprising. But like, you know, you would say they're talking about, um, you know, any release in the EPs. And I suppose this is kind of where I sort of think, my God, you know, because I've done a band called The Sidleys. They only did the EPs, but then someone put together a compilation because there's, there's these kind of fans now um, that you'll probably get contacted. There's Fire Station Records and this one in Preston called Optic Nerve Records. And there's oh. another one in New York. Obviously, someone, you know, is just running these little happy projects. Very keen. And um, yeah, so it's sort of been putting these compilations together with bands who only did EPs and then went, oh, look, we've got a nice little collection for you. So um, you never know, Optic Nerve might appear in your radar one day. Oh, I don't mind. Just come, bring them on, bring them on, bring them on. <laughs> um, no, but it's funny, you know, talking about going through different bands alphabetically reminds me of my brother, actually, he was telling me about a group years and years ago. Somebody was interested in getting into play and I kind of... Neil Young tribute band, you know, just to, you know, just to get some extra money. And they were learning Neil Young's catalog alphabetically. (laughs) 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 So it wasn't even like they were doing all the hits that were just beginning with A, and they were just very slowly working through his complete canon of works. God, it's like, God, Heart of Gold. Jesus Christ, that would be, you know. You're going to have to wait a long time to learn Heart of Gold, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> towards the end of the alphabet it's like the fans only need the best of you know they don't need the obscure you know electronic mm. kind of excursion that he once did in the 80s or whatever oh that's impressive well there anyway look thank you ever so much this has been amazing yeah, talking to you and uh, yeah good luck with your project and thank you for talking to me yeah no problem take care, yeah, I'll, take hit, care. I'll hit i'll hit end now see you soon bye see you soon. take care 
And that was me in conversation with Eugene Coyen talking about his life in music and Silver Chapter. That's it. This has been the C86 show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. All these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Stroom. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe. <laughs>